Father, we are here this morning not to listen to a word of man, but to hear the word of God. And we pray that you would come and be among us even now as we open your word. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, I really identified with Daniel LaRusso. Does anybody recognize that name? Um, if it doesn't ring a bell for you, truth be known, you probably have to be of a certain age to recognize that name. Daniel LaRusso is the main character and protagonist in the film The Karate Kid. And the reason that I identified with Daniel LaRusso is because he was a kid who moved to a new town, was an outsider, and had to deal with bullies. In 1984, when that movie came out, I had just finished two years in a new town where I was the outsider and where I had to learn to deal with bullies. And I loved LaRusso because through the course of this movie, he transforms from whipped underdog to the top dog who's handing out the whippings. And what kid wouldn't want to be like that? To have the wherewithal to stand and prevail when the bullies close in. And so I really identified with this guy. But the question, when you watch the movie, the question is, is how does he do this? Well, Daniel was fatherless and being raised by a single mom until he meets Mr. Miyagi, who became to him better than any father that he had known. But it doesn't start off that way, at least not as far as Daniel can tell. Mr. Miyagi promises to teach Daniel karate, and he requires Daniel to promise to do whatever Miyagi tells him to do. No questions. I promise to teach karate. You do whatever Miyagi tells you. No questions. And Daniel says, I'm in. But when Daniel shows up to Miyagi's home for instruction in the way of the hand, Miyagi turns Daniel into his house slave. First, Miyagi has him clean and wax his fleet of old cars. Then he has him paint a really long fence, both sides. Then he has him sand his deck and paint his house. And with every task comes very specific instructions from Miyagi as to how he's supposed to do all of these tasks. So when it comes to sanding the floor, Daniel wants to kind of go back and forth like this. And, 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 and Miyagi says, no, right the circle, left the circle. Right the circle, left it. You do it like this. But it's easier like this. No, you do it this way. And this goes on and on. And then it goes hours and hours. And then it goes days and days. Every day, Daniel grows more and more frustrated with doing all of this work for Miyagi but he's getting no karate instruction in exchange for it. Until finally, Daniel explodes at Miyagi, telling him that he's tired of being his slave and that he's going to go home. But before Daniel leaves, Miyagi calls him back and he says, Daniel-san, come here. Show me sand the floor. Daniel can't even move his arm because he is so cramped and fatigued from all of this work. Miyagi has put him through, and so Miyagi places his hands on Daniel's shoulder. He grips it, and he starts to manipulate it, 
It's very painful as far as Daniel is concerned. But when he's done, right there, Miyagi heals the muscles that Miyagi had broken. And he orders him again. He says, show me sand the floor. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me paint the fence. And so Daniel, as he goes through the motions of waxing and sanding and painting that Miyagi had taught him, Miyagi begins throwing punches and kicks at Daniel. And Daniel, with all these newly trained muscles, is able to parry every single punch and every single kick that comes his way. And it's like this epiphany. The work that Daniel thought was pointless and demeaning turned out to be Miyagi's wise training and discipline in the way of the hand. He was learning karate the whole time. There was nothing that Miyagi told him to do that was pointless. There was nothing that Miyagi instructed him that wasn't deliberately calculated for Daniel's good and strengthening. It wasn't in spite of the pain that Daniel could withstand every blow. It was because of the pain that Daniel could withstand every blow. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 11 through 13 says this, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. There is a real danger for all of us to see how God, really to fail to see how God is really at work in our lives. We are tempted to believe that God is only working for our good when things are going well for us. When we have no enemies and when things are all good and when everyone is happy with us. When we have no difficulties and everything seems to be going our way. We're tempted to think those are the times that God must be present. And so we're tempted to like our lives the way they are and to resist when God or when one of God's spokesmen begins to meddle with our comfort. We don't like it when we're confronted with trials. We don't like it when we're confronted with prophets who, dis who disrupt our comforts. Those who speak the word of God to us in a direct confrontation with our idols. No, we often prefer to be left alone and to go our own merry way with our sin. You just need to know that if that's the religion that you signed up for, you didn't sign up for Christianity. Christianity is designed by God to put you through your paces. God designs it so that you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. He means to confront your comforts sometimes. He means to confront your idols no matter the cost. And he, then he aims to take the bones that he has broken and then to make them rejoice. Are we the kind of people who are good with that? Who are good with the way that God works in us and among us through painful confrontations for our own good? Or do we regard the painful confrontations as demeaning to us and as unworthy of God? If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. 
And as we saw last week, Paul was facing a situation with the Corinthian congregation that had, this congregation had really just kind of become cynical towards Paul. They were cynical about what he was, had taught to them. They were, he, they were cynical about his word to them. They were even cynical about his motives in ministry towards them in general. Paul had promised to have an extended visit with them at the end of 1 Corinthians. But instead, he arrives for a visit in Corinth, and he discovers that someone has risen up against him to oppose him, and the Corinthians are doing nothing about this. So Paul cuts short this painful visit, and he does not complete the promised visit. So they were questioning the truthfulness of his word to them because, they had, because he had changed his travel plans. And there's a question hanging in the air about Paul and his word, apparently. Can he be trusted? And what we discovered in our, our last message is that Paul isn't the one who changed. It was the Corinthians who changed. Paul was always truthful with them. He left because of the rebellion against him. And Paul is writing 2 Corinthians in part to address their lingering questions about his word in light of his changed plans. And what he wants them to see is that his heart toward them in the midst of the painful visit that he made to them and his subsequent painful letter that we'll find out about, he wrote to them later, all of that ministry to them was not coming from a heart of disdain or of judgment towards them, but it was coming from a heart of joy and of love and restoration. Those were his, his motives. And so those are our, our three points this morning for the text. Um, the heart behind Paul's ministry is a heart for joy in verses 23 to 24, a heart for love in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and a heart for restoration in chapter 2, in verses 5 through 11. Now, when, when I got into preparation for this sermon, I, you know, I like to have three points, but sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. Um, I don't have time to do all of these today. So... We're going to actually do verses 5 through 11 next week. This will be in two parts, all right? So today we're going to look at these first two, and we'll have to postpone the latter and spend some more time on it um, uh, next week. But look at the first thing here. It's a heart for joy. Look at chapter 1 and verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Now, he says here, I call God to witness against me. And the wording here in the original, I'm not so sure that the ESV has it, maybe as it's intended. Um, I'm not sure he's calling God to witness against him. Some translations say something along the lines of, I call God as a witness concerning my life. That rendering, I think maybe near what, is, what Paul meant, that rendering suggests that he's calling on God as a witness to the way that Paul lives his life. Has Paul really done something that's blameworthy? You know, if God is a witness to my life, I'm calling God as a witness to my life to see whether or not I've done something blameworthy. Has Paul done something blameworthy by not completing his visit to them? That's kind of the question that's addressing, and he wants God, he's calling in God as witness to that. And I think he's saying God is a witness that no, in fact, Paul is not blameworthy in this matter. No, because Paul explains that his real motive for not completing his visit was to spare them pain. 
What pain was he sparing them? Well, Paul, in this verse, uses the same word for spare that he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. If you don't want to turn there, I'll just read it to you. But he says this, I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. So I didn't want to come and do the visit like I said before because I'm trying to spare you. But if I come again, he says at the end, I'm not going to spare anybody. So what is he talking about here? Well, it's really clear in the context that he's talking about discipline. He's talking about the kind of discipline that the apostle would commend and would expect the church to carry out if a person or a group of people failed to repent. It's precisely, I think, what he threatened to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in verses 18 through 21. He said this. He said, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? In other words, do you want me to come with apostolic guns blazing for discipline, the rod, or do you want a spirit of, of gentleness? So when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 23, and when Paul talks about sparing them, He's talking about having patience and mercy towards them, not wanting to pull the trigger on that discipline. He's trying to be patient. Instead of disciplining them himself when he was there, he left and wrote them this, a severe letter instead. In other words, the reason Paul did not complete his visit with them and had not returned is because he wanted to give them more time to repent. That's why he says, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Why does he spare them? Look at verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. What does Paul mean when he says, not that we lord it over your faith? That word translated as lord over is a verb that can mean to just rule over somebody, in a sort of a general sense, or it can mean to rule tyrannically over someone. Kind of like when Jesus um, spoke in Luke chapter 22, verse 25, when he said, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. It's the same word. But the, emphasis, the, the implication is one of ruling tyrannically. Okay? So it can be ruling in a general sense or ruling tyrannically. If he means the former, then the point is that Paul doesn't rule over their faith in the sense that he does not control or force them to believe. Um, if it's and so that, because that would be God's domain alone. No person can make another person believe. If Paul means the latter, the ruling tyrannically, then he's saying that his role as an apostle is not to be a tyrant over them. I think it's difficult to know which sense is intended here. I think both senses would be true statements. In any case, I think the real point is what he says. The his, the, the aim of his apostleship is, and that's what you see at the end of verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Now, I don't want to lose you all this morning by getting in the weeds here, but 
There's a couple of tweaks that I want to add because this is one place where I think the ESV doesn't give us the best rendering. The ESV says that we work with you for your joy. But literally what it says, the underlying expression says that we are fellow workers for your joy. Now this is a distinction with a difference, okay? He says we are fellow workers for your joy. Um, it's not that he's working along with the Corinthians for something. He's saying, we are fellow workers for your joy. So the question is, who's the we? There's no reason in the context to understand the we as Paul and the Corinthians. Up until this point, the we has referred to Paul and to Timothy and Titus, Paul and his, his co-workers. The we, in fact, in the first half of the verse, is referring to Paul and his co-workers. It's not the Corinthians. So there's no reason to read the Corinthians into the we in the second half of the verse. Is everybody following me here? So what does that mean? Well, when, when Paul says we are fellow workers for your joy, he's describing what his job is as an apostle to them. It's his job and it's, it's the job of his, his co-workers that he has with him. Jesus does not appoint apostles to be tyrants over God's people. He does not appoint apostles for them to force people to, to believe. Rather, he appoints Paul and his co-workers to work together for the joy of those that they minister to. Believe it or not, Paul is really clear here that he does not get kicks out of having to confront the Corinthians. This is not what he lives for. He didn't really want to grieve the people that he ministered to. His ultimate goal was to bring them joy. So his heart behind the confrontations that he has to bring to them, his heart for them was for their good and for their eternal happiness. And sometimes people's highest joy can only come on the other side of a confrontation. Paul does not relish the grief caused by the confrontation. But he does relish the joy on the other side of the confrontation that they will have in Christ. And he's doing everything, including painful visits, to bring that about. His confrontations with them are not so that he can lord his authority over them, but for their joy in Christ. Look at the last clause in the verse, in verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are fellow workers for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. Paul's confidence that his work would be for their joy was that their faith was actually genuine. He, you, you stand firm in your faith. I know that you've got a genuine faith going on. He is. We talked about this last week. He is really confident in the last day he's going to be their boast. They will be his boast. Their faith is, is genuine. And so he's motivated to be a fellow worker for joy to them because he knows their faith is authentic. They are still standing firm in the, in the very basics of the gospel. So Paul is there in, to, to work for their joy. That's the point. He doesn't want to grieve them. How many of you have kids here? Many of you have kids here. And whether your kids are grown or small, one thing remains constant about having children. It's almost unbearable to see them suffer. It's difficult when you know that they're struggling in some kind of a way. Um, 
perhaps the hardest thing is when your kids are struggling with the Lord and you see them rebel against the truth of the gospel. You don't relish the confrontations that come from that, but neither do you avoid those confrontations that must come because of that. You're willing to do the confrontation because you know it's for their ultimate joy and good. And the present pain of confrontation is nothing compared to the future pain of damnation. And so you fight and you pray and you persuade your children. Why do you do it? You don't do it because you relish their grief or you relish being at odds with them. You do it for their joy. Ultimately, you're doing it for their their good. That kind of fatherly, motherly love that's normal towards children is, is actually what Paul is describing as his heart and ministry. He doesn't get kicks out of disappointing the Corinthians with painful visits and severe letters. Nevertheless, he's willing to do all of that and more in order to lead God's people safely home. He'll do it. So the question is, are you okay when God brings this kind of confrontational ministry into your life? Can you see the heart that is behind it? God's heart behind it. When you open the word of God and see it confronting this or that area in your life, do you run from the confrontation or do you press into it? Do you let God have his way or do you fight against him and resent his intrusion? When you sit under faithful preaching of the word of God and the Lord uses his word and his servant to confront idols and errors in your heart, do you let the confrontation come or do you kick and cuss against it? Do you evade the word by blaming the messenger? You just need to understand that the Lord designs these confrontations not to frustrate you or to grieve you ultimately, but to enable you to rejoice in the saving lordship of Christ. All of this is for your joy, and every single one of us have rough edges that need to be knocked off. That's the key here. So Paul's motivation in ministry is that He has a heart for them, but his his heart is for their joy. Second thing is that Paul has a heart for love. Everybody look at chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Now, in this verse, we're finding Paul's explicit reference to that painful visit that we've been talking about the last two weeks. Remember, as Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians, he has made two visits already to to Corinth. The first visit is the one that's in the Bible in Acts chapter 18. uh, When he evangelized Corinth, they all first came to faith, planted the church. The second visit is when he visited them and everything blew up. Okay, that's not recorded in Acts. But um, it, it was a bad visit. He's referring to it here. Okay. Paul does not want a repeat of that second visit. Why not? Look at verse 2. For if I cause you pain, 
Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Paul is an apostle, which means he has a lot of authority, right? He's been set forth by Jesus to bear his name before the Gentiles. He, is a, he has a lot of authority as an apostle, but it's really fascinating because he's stressing the mutuality of their relationship at this point. Paul has already said that his job as an apostle is not to grieve them, but to bring them joy. Now he's saying that it's not the congregation's role to grieve him, but to bring joy to him too. Do you see the mutual obligation here? We're not supposed to be grieving each other. We're supposed to be bringing joy to one another. Reminds me of Hebrews chapter 13 in verse 17 where the author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, the leaders in Hebrews 13, 17 aren't apostles. They're elders, pastors. But I think the principle here is still the same, isn't it? Does it really profit you, as a congregation, if you have sad, discouraged, depressed shepherds? No, it doesn't. Uh, you want to relate to them and to affirm uh, the leadership of elders in such a way that you bring them joy and not grief. That's your job, just as it is your shepherd's job, our job, to bring you joy. So the obligation is, is mutual here, and I think this is what Paul is getting at, but of course he's writing as an apostle, and he's, he's saying that he stayed away for a while so that he could avoid another painful visit to them. Paul didn't want to come to them with his apostolic guns blazing, mowing down the wayward sheep. No, he wanted to bring them joy. He wanted, to bring, he wanted them to bring him joy. And he knew that they were in no shape to offer that to one another after the painful visit that he had with them that second time. And so instead of visiting them another time, he does something else. Look at verse 3. He says, and I wrote as I did. Now when he says I wrote as I did, he's not talking about 1 Corinthians at that point. This is another writing that he sent to them after 1 Corinthians that was a severe letter and that brought a big confrontation, okay? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Remember, he's still explaining why he didn't complete his promised visit to them. He says that he didn't want things to be painful like they were before. So instead of visiting them again as he intended, he writes to them instead. And instead of being severe in person, he's severe with them in a letter. He writes to them, not cynically, it's, it's, a, it's a confrontational letter. But he's not writing to them cynically, but he's writing, you can tell from this verse, with great hopefulness and anticipation that they would respond favorably, that they would deal with that person who had risen up in opposition to Paul on his last visit, and that they would reaffirm their commitment to Paul and to his teaching. He was hopeful of all of that because he says, I felt sure of all of you. 
that my joy would be the joy of you all. He really believed that they would, they would come around. So look at verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Are you tracking with Paul now? Don't let that first line go past you. He says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. And at this point, you just need to let yourself into the life of the apostle for a moment. Think about what it was like for him. He has already told them in chapter 1 that he doesn't want them to be unaware of the affliction that came to him in Asia, that he was utterly burdened beyond what he thought he could handle by all this persecution that he was undergoing. And it says that he even despaired of life. He thought he was going to die. He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, meaning he, he thought that his life was over at many points. That's how horrid the persecution was during his ministry in Asia. It turns out that throughout his ministry, he preaches the gospel in places in Asia and beyond, in places where people persecute him and try to kill him. Even when he first preached in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the persecution got so bad that he was about to flee the city and Jesus himself had to show up and tell Paul, no, you stay. I have many people in this city. Don't fear, you go on preaching, you stay. But he was about to take off, which he often had to do in places because the persecution was so bad. Now imagine if this was your lot in life. Your life was Paul's life. And your daily grind was not that you get up and you go to work and have a cranky boss, come home, do whatever you do at night, and then go do the same thing over again. That's not your life, okay? Or maybe it's school, okay? You get up, you go to school, do your work, go to work, come home. That's not your life. Imagine your life is Paul's life. Your daily grind is to preach the gospel in place after place all over the Roman world. You've never been to these places, a lot of them. And you're the first one there announcing the good news of King Jesus, and when you preach the gospel, you're often preaching to ungrateful, vindictive people who are willing to kill you for loving them. Imagine that's your daily grind. Do you think that you might get a little discouraged in the midst of all of that? Do you think the conflict might be a burden on your soul? It was certainly a burden on Paul's soul. He said, we despaired even of life. If you are going to find a respite from the abuse that you're experiencing, experiencing, and wouldn't you earnestly desire a respite every now and again from that? If you were going to find a respite from that kind of abuse, where would you find it? Would you find it in the synagogue? Well, no. Those are some of the worst persecutors that Paul faced in Corinth, actually. Would you find it in the public square? Well, no, those people are easily stirred up into mobs. Just read the book of Acts. The only place that you can reasonably hope to find rest and encouragement is among the people of God. 
But when Paul came to Corinth the second time, he doesn't find encouragement and rest from the storm outside of the church. No, he finds a storm inside of the church. And instead of mutual encouragement, he finds that he has to confront and grieve the very last people on the planet that he wants to grieve. And the very last people that he wants to be at odds with. These are his people, and they are stirred up against him, and it's grief upon grief to Paul. That's what he's expressing here in verses 1 through 4. So this is the state that Paul was in when he wrote them. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. The last thing Paul wanted to do was to have to have a painful visit. To God's people and to write a severe letter to them. But he was willing to do it. Why? Verse 4, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He did it for love. He loved them too much to let the conflict between them, to just to let it drop. To act like everything is okay when everything is not okay. Love is not unconditional affirmation because love never delights in evil but always rejoices in the truth. So here's the question. Are you willing to receive that kind of love in your life? Do you invite and welcome people into your life like Paul who will tell you not just what you want to hear but what you need to hear? This last week, former Vice President Joe Biden picked Senator Kamala Harris to be his running mate in his bid for the presidency. And after that pick was made public, um, I saw an open letter that you remember Governor Sarah Palin, former Governor Sarah Palin? She wrote this kind of open letter to Senator Harris about the vice presidential nod. And you may remember that uh, Sarah Palin was Senator John McCain's running mate in the 2008 election. And so she knows something about what it means to be a vice presidential candidate. And she knows what Harris is, is getting into. And among other things, Palin warned her this. And this is what stuck out to me. She said, trust no one new. Trust no one new. Meaning, don't trust anyone that wasn't already your friend before you became the vice presidential nominee. Why? Because once you get to become the vice presidential nominee, all kinds of sycophants start trying to glom on to you to get whatever they can out of you. And they will flatter you and tell you whatever they need to say to advance themselves through you. But they don't really care about you. They only care about their own agendas. And so Palin tells Senator Harris, don't trust any of these new friends. They're sharks, many of them. They aren't your friends. The book of Proverbs puts it this way. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Which means this. A true friend will tell you what you need to hear. A false friend will tell you what you want 
to hear. They will flatter you and tickle your ears, but that's not really a real friend, the one who does that. We all know this is true, kind of instinctively, that this is the case. But guess what? Kisses feel better than wounds. <laughs> and sometimes we gravitate towards those kinds of people who will stroke our egos and who won't tell us like it is. And maybe sometimes it's their fault. Maybe they're too much of a man-fearer to speak the truth into the ears of a friend. But maybe sometimes the fault lies with us. Maybe sometimes we let it be known in our own way that we're not going to listen to or accept any kind of constructive feedback into our lives, any kind of criticism at all. We can kind of put the signal out there. You can do that with friends. You can do that with church members. You can do it within your own family. You can create a little bubble that you live in which is your own little criticism-free zone. If anybody transgresses it, you bite their head off. That's not a way to live. Don't get me wrong. Not all criticism comes from good or well-meaning people. Sometimes people are destructively critical, and that's not really what I'm talking about, about here. I'm talking about good faith feedback from friends and loved ones who love you too much to let you persist in moral compromise or in error do you welcome that kind of feedback into your life or have you put up a no trespass sign when it comes to people speaking into your life from the word of god if you do that you're going to you're going to push away real friends and you're going to find yourself surrounded by a bunch of sycophants who aren't going to help you grow in christ at all they'll just grease the skids for you to continue in error but that's not the kind of man that, that Paul was. And he didn't believe that those were the kinds of people that the Corinthians were. He had great confidence in them. He was willing to write a happy letter when it was needed, and he was willing to write the severe letter when God's people needed it. Why does he do it? Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. The heart behind Paul's severity was love. And apparently the Corinthians received it. So are we willing to receive that kind of love? Here's another question. Are we willing to give that kind of love? I want to be careful here because there's some people, probably in the sound of my voice, who are way too critical. And they like finding fault and they like the thrill of saying awful things under the guise of I'm just keeping it real. That kind of an attitude is not what the Bible commends, and it's not what I'm talking about here. It doesn't do anyone any good for you to keep it real if you're being a real jerk, okay? That's not Paul's attitude here. He didn't relish grieving people. If anything's clear in these verses, it's, that's clear. He didn't relish grieving them. But he was willing to serve God's people by bringing God's word to them in season and out of season. Meaning when it's well-received and when it's not well-received. When they like it and when it's hard for them. Are you willing to humbly and gently offer that kind of love? If not, you're not a trustworthy friend. 
And you need to beware of flattery that will keep your relationships at a superficial level and that, that doesn't help. Can you be the kind of good friend that brings the tough word when necessary and to do it with a spirit of gentleness? This was Paul's heart. It was a heart for joy. It was a heart for love. And next week, I'm going to show you that his heart was also for restoration. But as we close now, let me ask you a few questions by way of application. Could you maybe go to a trusted friend and ask them if you are the person that can receive the kind of love that is spoken of here? In other words, are you approachable? Or have you maybe, without realizing it, created this little zone that nobody can come into and that you're going to punch them in the face if they get in it? Maybe find somebody. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a roommate. Just ask somebody that you know and love and that you know has your best interest at heart. Just ask them, how am I doing here? Also, maybe ask this. Ask if you're the kind of good faith friend who can offer the kind of constructive feedback that people need. Ask them. Maybe do some self-examination. Go look at the Proverbs and see what it says about flattery. Those who flatter all the time. See if this is where you are. And here's one maybe real practical thing you could do. I'm talking to the members of Kenwood now, okay? Get into a small group. You know, it's easy in, in a church, especially in a church at pandemic time, it's easy to kind of uh, not let people into your life. For people not to know you. And maybe you can come in and sit and leave and nobody really knows who you are or what's going on in your life. Maybe one way that you can address some of these issues is to be in a small group and to invite some people into your, into your life. If, if that's you, you would like to do that, go talk to Matt. Matt, Matt will, will get you connected. One more thing I want to say. And be clear about um, the reason that we all gather here and that we're able to be in fellowship with one another is because of what Jesus has done for us and among us. And if there's anybody here who's visiting, maybe listening online, and you don't know the gospel that has brought all of us together, we want you to know what that gospel is. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And all of us are sinners. And because we are sinners, we are alienated from God, our creator. G God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins, to take the penalty that we deserve. And he died on a cross. And then he raised him up, bringing him to life so that he could offer eternal life to us. So that we don't have to face the penalty of our sins, but we can be forgiven for our sins and have eternal life because of what Jesus did for us. We can't earn that salvation. All we can do is receive it by believing. If you are here this morning and you know you're a sinner, guess what? You're ready for this gospel. Because the first step in, in becoming a believer is recognizing that you're a sinner 
turning away from your sin and then trusting in Jesus. And the Bible says he will freely give you eternal life and forgiveness and all those blessings just by trusting in him. If you haven't done that, you need to do that right now. And if, if you want to do that and you want to know more about this, then come find one of us. We would love to talk to you uh, about that. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use this word to sanctify your people and to save sinners. I pray that you would conform us into the image of Christ. Lord, I pray you would protect us from a hyper-partisan critical spirit. I pray that we would be known more for our forbearance than for our criticism. But Lord, I do pray that you would also make us humble enough to bring the confrontations when they need to happen and to receive them when they need to happen. And that you would cause us to be changed and to become more like Christ as a result of it. Lord, give us a heart not to grieve one another, but to work for one another's joy. Do this, Father, in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.